So this week we are in John chapter 13. Uh, so we finished chapter 12 last week and we're going to look at Christ washing the disciples' feet. Now this section of scripture we're starting now goes from chapter 13 to 17 and it's Jesus in the upper room talking with his disciples. And uh, so that's basically the, the situation. He gave his final public teaching in chapter 12 and now it's just him and the disciples in the upper room. We'll pray and then we'll read verses 1 to 17. Father, I thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture where Jesus shows his humility and his love for the disciples and for us too. And so we just pray that you will help us to understand and to get application from what we're learning in these verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 13, 1 to 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, we've had um, an amazing foot washing about five days prior to this event, and that was Mary in the house of Simon the leper, I believe. And that took place on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, which was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem to present himself as king. And Mary washed his feet with costly perfume, um, oil of spikenard. Now, five days later, Jesus is washing the dirt and grime off the feet of the disciples. And he does this to share with them a powerful, penetrating teaching which illustrates humility, love, and servanthood. So we'll start in verse 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. So I'm just going to break this down a bit. So Jesus knew that his hour had come. So Jesus' whole life was lived in anticipation of this one event. And it reminds me of a Michael W. Smith song called Secret Ambition. And one of the the lines in that song says, nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. Well, it wasn't all that secret because he kept telling people, but they didn't understand. And it's interesting, we um, looked at what it meant by his hour and it it represents the cross. And we talked about the fact that if our hour has not come, then we have like a supernatural protection, like Jesus did. Um, they wanted to kill him, arrest him, whatever, but they couldn't because his hour had not come. But now, his hour has come. And back in chapter 12, in verses 23 to 27, he says in there, For this purpose I came to this hour. My whole purpose in coming was to die on the cross, to give his life away. So in less than 24 hours, or about 24 hours, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. And this is the beginning of the end of Jesus' mortal life on earth. So what would you do if you knew that you only had one day to live? You do what's most important to you, right? And so that's a really, really good test to know what's important to you. You know, because anything else, is, well, I've only got one day, I've only got 24 hours, I need to do what's most important to me. Well, what was most important to Jesus? What was the most important thing in this world to him? Well, it wasn't a thing, it was people, it was the disciples, it was those who were his own, and that includes us. So in this world, we are the most important thing to Jesus. So Jesus uses these last precious hours to minister and to teach, and to encourage, and to exhort, and to pray for his disciples. So, right until the last day, the last minute, Jesus is still about the Father's business, finishing his kingdom work. So, like Paul said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Jesus can say the same thing. I have finished the work that God has sent me to do. I have finished the race. So the phrase that he should depart this world to the Father. So this is talking about the cross. Uh, I've got a quote from a commentator called David Guzik. It says, The cross is not specifically mentioned in John 13.1, but it casts a shadow over almost every word. We see the shadow of the cross over his hour had come. We see the shadow of the cross over he loved them to the end but we also see the shadow of the cross over to part this world it is phrased softly but there is an iron hard reality underneath the soft cover jesus would only depart this world through the cross and it says in this world talking about the disciples there and i just want to remind you that we are in this world but not of this world, okay? So the boat in the water is good, 
But water in the boat is a disaster and you will sink as a Christian if you allow the world into your life. And having loved his own. Now, what were the disciples talking about when they walked into the um, upper room for the Passover meal? I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. No, 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 no. I'm the leader. No, 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 no. I'm the leader. I'm the boss. I'm the greatest. And they're all bickering and arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. And what does it say here? Jesus loved his own. These disciples who had no idea what was going on, after many times that Jesus has says, I'm going to be dying soon, I'm going to go to the cross, and they still don't get it, and they still just don't seem to have any compassion or concern for Jesus. They're just thinking about themselves. And what does it say? Having loved his own. So, how are we Jesus' own? Well, as Jesus' disciples, or as his followers, we are his own. We are his own sheep in John chapter 10, his own brethren in Hebrews chapter 2, his own bride in Ephesians 5, his own body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So his ownership is creative in that he made us, elective in that he chose us, and redemptive in that he died for us. So God, when it says God owns us, or that we are his own, it's very rich. So how great is God's love for us? And the next phrase there, it says, He loved them to the end. Or that you could translate that as, unto the uttermost. In other words, He loved them with no limit. And that, to me, is just fantastic, because these guys were just like me. He was aware of their faithlessness and their failures, their past failures, present failures, and future failures. So here are some examples of their past faltering. So here is um, James and John in Luke 9.54. Let's call down fire from heaven and kill everyone who doesn't respond to you. Hmm, okay. Uh, Nathaniel says in John one forty six, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Scoffed Nathaniel skeptically. <laughs> he was also aware of their future failings. Satan desires to sift you like wheat, Peter, he would say, but I have prayed for you, and when you come through, strengthen the brothers. It's Luke 22, 31 and 32. And their present flaws, as we've already mentioned. Instead of looking to Jesus and listening to him respectfully, no. They're arguing around the table about who is the greatest. And that's uh, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. And not only was there arguing around the table, but stinking feet <laughs> behind them. It's customary in those days for a servant to wash the dust off the feet of anyone who entered the home of his master, in this case, however, no one humbled himself to wash feet, so everyone's feet remained dirty. Interesting. So, despite all this, Jesus says he loved them with everything he had. So, when we fail, when we mess up, which we do every day, it doesn't mean God stops loving us. <laughs> this is a good example of God loving people who are unlovely and unlovable which we can be sometimes. He never, ever stops loving us. 
So verse 2, it says, And supper being ended, well, other manuscripts say supper was now in progress. And it makes more sense because in verse 30, the supper continues, so it's not actually finished. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas was led by the devil. And if you read in the other Gospels, Luke 22 verse 3 tells us that Satan had actually entered or possessed Judas prior to this meal. He had actually gone out to a chief priest and agreed to betray Jesus prior to this. And verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is important. Jesus already knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, but it's really important that he remembers this now. So in John 3.35, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. But it's important that Jesus remembers this at this particular circumstance, at this time. So why? Well, it's important because of the hour. Jesus is about to face the agony of crucifixion and the terror of standing in the place of guilty sinners before the righteous wrath of God the Father. So we can go into these situations as a victim or as a victor. If you don't remember that Jesus has given us all things, or the Father has given us all things into our hands that we need, then we will go in as a victim. But if we remember that God has empowered us to go through these situations, we will go through them as a victor. And so Jesus goes through the cross as a victor. He's understanding that the Father has given all things into his hands. This is how we can rejoice in suffering and serve willingly because God has put all things, given us all things. The Bible says that in other places for us personally. Secondly, it was important because of the circumstance. Jesus was about to lower himself, stooping in humble service to his disciples. But as he serves in this humble way, he's not doing it from weakness. He's doing it from a position of authority. So the Father has given all things into his hands. So it's important for us to understand that serving others is not a sign of weakness, but of strength. And it comes from knowing, remembering our identity in Christ, about remembering that God has given us everything that we need. So the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Everything is opposite to the world. In contrast to Jesus' example, the world says that if you want to be powerful, then you need to lord it over others, tell them what to do, and get them to serve you. But Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, the greatest is the servant of all. The second part of verse 3, and that he had come from God and was going to God. So Jesus looked at his bickering, smelly-feated disciples and loved them because he knew where he came from and where he was headed. So what does this mean? Well, if we don't know where we come from and where we're going, then we can't love. Faith concerning the past, what God has done for us, and hope concerning the future, God's plan for us, is necessary. You have to understand both those things for us to be able to love in the present. So he had come from God and was going to God. It speaks of his relationship with God. 
And uh, I've got another quote. Jesus didn't only know his authority, he also knew his relationship with God. He knew his identity as one who had come from God, as one who was going to God. Knowing his past with God the Father and his future with God the Father, what else could he do but glorify him in the present? So, for us, in the, our past is, well, we're in Christ now. We're justified. We're in Him. We're in Christ. Our future, we're going to be the bride of Christ. We're going to be with Him forever. And if we don't remember those things, then we won't be able to love others. We need to understand and have faith in what God has done for us in the past to be able to overcome sin, to be able to not feel condemned and be condemned and understand and have hope that in the plans that he has for us in the future if we are to love others now in the present. So we'll come back to that. Verse 4, it says, He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That means it put around his waist. So in this culture, what Jesus was doing must have seemed crazy to the disciples. He began to do the job of the lowest servant in the household. He began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, there's a few things we can learn from these two verses. First, we can't love others completely to the end unless we are thinking of them first before ourselves as being more important than ourselves. We can't love others if we're thinking of ourselves. We must be esteeming them as being better than ourselves. And humanly speaking, just looking from a human perspective, I find it amazing that at this time, at this critical moment, at this evening before the torture of the cross, Jesus is still not thinking about himself. Now, I kind of put myself in his shoes. In my humanity, in my sinful nature, I would be looking for sympathy for the terrible ideal I was about to go through. Some encouragement. Some recognition of the good I was about to do. Wouldn't you? <laughs> but not Jesus. He's only thinking about his disciples. He's completely selfless. And this is what it means to be loving them to the end. Not only that, but his disciples are treating him badly. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And he knows they're going to, in a day or so, he's, they're going to forsake him completely. And yet he still loved them completely and demonstrated that love by washing their feet. And second, what we can learn from these two verses is love gives all. So Jesus was all in. There was no half-hearted or token effort. So he completely gave himself to washing their feet. And he was very thorough. So he first he rose from the supper, then he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and girded himself. He poured the water into the basin and washed everyone's feet. He did everything from start to finish. And the point I'm trying to make here is um, highlighted by this quote. If Jesus wanted to display the image of a servant, he would have had a servant or one of the disciples do all this preparation work. He would then have quickly wiped damp cloth on a few dirty feet and consider the job done. That would give the image of servanthood and loving leadership. But Jesus gave himself completely to this work. So 
that you know getting other people to do most of the work for you is, is basically it's a token effort of someone who wants to seem spiritual to be, to be seen as spiritual but isn't willing to count the cost the full cost of true sacrificial love david said in first chronicles 21:24 no i insist on buying it for the full price I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not present burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. So our worship is costly. Our service is costly. This is when David is buying the um, the property that the temple is now built on, or was built on. We need to be careful that we don't take credit for someone else's sacrifice or stop serving before the job is complete. And uh, the other thing we, we can learn from this is this was an extreme act of servanthood. So according to Jewish laws and traditions regarding the relationship between a teacher and his disciples, a teacher had no right to demand or expect that his disciples would wash his feet. So how much more unthinkable was it that the master would wash his disciples' feet? Now, how does this apply to us? What does extreme mean? Well, extreme often means counter-culture, doing things that our culture would consider uncool or lowly. An example in Western culture might include cleaning and unlocking a public toilet that someone has left in a less than hygienic state. Most people would say, that's not my job. I didn't dirty it or block it up, and it's disgusting. They would be turned off and walk away and just use another toilet. I mean, I've done that before. Oh, that stinks. And you walk away and find another toilet. And this is an example of just how extreme Jesus' service was, how much he lowered himself. And fourthly, what we can learn about these two verses, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, is that the servant of all is the greatest of all. So Jesus went around the table washing and drying the feet of his disciples. It's a dramatic scene. So, Remember, the disciples come into the room debating who's the greatest. But by what Jesus did, Jesus illustrates true greatness. He demonstrated that he was the greatest of all by being the servant of all. Now, I just want to go through just quickly what it was like at the time to help you see um, and understand the context. So there's a picture on the board. And... The table is called a triclinium. Triclinium. It's a low U-shaped table, and they would have cushions around the outside and would lay around the outside. And the people at the end of the table would be in the lowest positions. The most honoured positions would be at the head of the table. And there would be Judas in this situation. Now, it's as I mentioned before, it's customary that the lowest servant of the house would wash the feet of the guests as they came into the house, especially for a formal meal like the Passover. But for some reason, this didn't happen when Jesus and the disciples came into the room. So they started eating their meal with dirty feet. And if you look at those feet, you can't hide them under the tablecloth. You know, these feet are sticking out and everyone's got dirty, smelly feet. And the you know you're trying to eat your food, and your feet are smelling. And it's like, hmm. 
So why didn't the disciples want to wash Jesus' feet? Do you think the disciples would be willing to wash Jesus' feet? Ah, so why didn't they? If the disciples are willing to wash Jesus' feet, but they're not willing to wash each other's feet. Okay? Because if they wash Jesus' feet, that would mean that they would have to also wash everybody else's feet. Right? And that would, in their way of thinking, in that worldly, earthly, carnal, fleshly way of thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Because then I'd be admitting that I'm less than you, then you're better than me, you're greater than me. So, no, 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 I'm not going to wash your feet. And so they all thought the same way, and so no one's feet got washed. So, to me, this reveals a lack of understanding of the command that we should be doing all things as unto the Lord. Because it is very difficult to serve other people. So I'm just going to put Colossians Chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So, remember that the master you are serving is Christ. So, here's a secret to serving other people especially people who are hard to get along with. If you're finding it difficult to serve someone or to give to someone or help someone when the Lord has shown you that that is his will for you, then picture in your head that it is Jesus you are serving and ask yourself, would I be willing to do this for Jesus? Now, hopefully your answer would be yes. If no, then it shows that we don't fully understand or appreciate what Jesus has already done for us, that we are not very grateful for all that he has sacrificed for us. So this is one of the reasons we celebrate communion, to remember what Christ has done for us and given us, because with our sinful nature, we can very easily forget and become selfish. So I'm going to go through those two verses again, but this time we're going to look at it as a parable of Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. So I'm going to just read the summary first. The summary of this parable, um, interpreting this as a parable, Jesus is essentially acting out a parable for the disciples. So he's wanting to teach the proud, arguing disciples about true humility. And he didn't just say it, he showed it. And he showed it in a way that illustrated his whole work on behalf of his own, which is disciples and us. So the first thing is, Jesus rose from the supper, a place of rest and comfort. Well, Jesus rose from his throne in heaven, which is also a place of rest and comfort. Secondly, Jesus laid aside his garments, taking off his covering. Well, Jesus laid aside his glory, taking off his heavenly covering. Jesus took a towel and girded himself, being ready to work. Jesus took the form of a servant and came ready to work. Jesus poured water into a basin, ready to clean. 
What did he do? Jesus poured out his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin. Lastly, Jesus sat down again, John thirteen twelve, after washing their feet. Well, Jesus will sit down, has sat down at the right hand of God the Father after cleansing us. So it's a pretty good picture of the humility and the servanthood of Jesus coming down from heaven and doing the work of a servant here on earth and cleansing us. So just go through that and point out some verses that help us to understand that a bit better. So just as Jesus rose from the last supper, he rose in eternity past from the banquet that he enjoyed with the Father and Spirit continually to willingly take upon himself the form of a man. And we find that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. So this is the verses that show and kind of go parallel with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So it's Philippians 2, 5 to 8. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, literally emptied himself, He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So the next uh, phrase there is, laid aside his garments. So just as Jesus laid aside his earthly garments, Philippians 2 says he laid aside the garments of glory to come and dwell among us. So, This is important because if we look at Jesus in the New Testament, it wasn't Jesus as God doing this. He was Jesus as an emptied person. He'd emptied himself of his glory and his power. And he was relying on the power of the Spirit and depending on the Father. So depending on the Father, relying on the power of the Spirit, he wasn't doing things by his own strength. He was doing things by the strength and the empowering of the Spirit. So the walking on the water, the multiplying of the loaves and fishes, the quieting of the storm, he didn't do that from his own power. He did that from the Spirit's power, depending on the Father, same as we do. And he took a towel and girded himself. So just as Jesus wrapped himself in a towel to claim the disciples' feet, so he wrapped his divinity in human flesh. He was still God, totally God, always God, yet wrapped in the towel of humanity. And one commentator points out that the word towel used here refers to a linen towel. And a white linen towel speaks of righteousness. So Jesus, it's a good picture. Jesus wraps himself in the righteous towel of human flesh, for he was like us, yet without sin. After that, he poured water into a basin. Now water speaks of the word of God. Uh, Jesus says in John fifteen three, You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. We are washed, says Paul, by the water of the word, Ephesians 5.26. So wrapped in the towel of human frailty, human body, Jesus pours out his word to us. He tells us who God is. He explains God's plan to us. He reveals God's love for us. He demonstrates to us how to live. He becomes flesh and dwells among us. And began to wipe the disciples' feet is the next phrase. So this model, this parable, if you want to call it that, is not a picture of salvation, but of sanctification. It's not of conversion, but of 
confession. And I'm going to read 1 John 1 9 in a bit. So as I walk through this world, I get dirty feet. We get dirty feet. We sin. Okay. And here's Jesus who not only pours out the truth of the word of God, which cleanses us, but he then applies it to us as he washes us continually in a practical way. So 1 John 1 9 in the Amplified says, If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, true to his own nature and promises, and will forgive our sins, dismiss our lawlessness, and continuously, notice that in brackets there, continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything not in conformity to his will, in purpose, thought, and action. We'll come back to the whole idea of confession there. And to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So just as he dried the disciples' feet, or what's Jesus doing at this moment? He's interceding for us, and he's going to complete the job. He's not going to leave us all wet. He'll dry our feet. He'll see us through. And Philippians 1.6 And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So that's the analogy comparing Jesus coming down to earth and cleansing us on the, by the cross and then rising again, going back to the Father and comparing that to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Let's go on to verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So, because the washing feet was a slave's job, Peter couldn't understand why Jesus would do this. Yet instead of saying to Peter, Well, Peter, this is a beautiful type or model of Philippians 2, Jesus said, bluntly, Peter, you're not going to understand what I'm doing now, but you will later. You know what? Sometimes when God does things for us, we don't understand now, but we will later. So, did Peter later understand? Yes. And I'll show you where it says so. It's First Peter 5.5. 5. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. I love that. Clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Jesus was literally clothed as a slave, performing the duties of a slave. He had a servant's heart. And for us, that's what being clothed with humility means. It doesn't mean we have to put a white linen garment on us and how a slave would dress. But to be willing to take the lowest position, to give up our own rights and privileges, to consider other people's needs as being more important than our own. Now, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. That was Jesus' response to Peter. So sometimes God speaks to us about some area in our life where he's trying to um, bring some change. Some, he's challenging us. He's trying to adjust something in our lives. But we're saying, I'm not going to do it until I can see how it's going to work out. I'm not going to do this until I understand why. You know, a husband might be saying, I'm not going to stay with her until I see a change in her attitude. The wife might be saying, I'm not going to submit to him until he proves himself. 
A teenager might be saying, I'm not going to obey them until they make sense. Now that's backward, because revelation follows obedience, not the other way around. We obey, and then we understand. So Peter allowed Jesus to wash his feet, and then later on, he understood. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew he would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. So Jesus is saying to Peter, You don't need a bath, Peter. You're already clean. You see, it's just your feet that need washing. Now this speaks of communion with Jesus on a daily basis. We walk in a dirty world. This world is full of sin. Okay, So picture you know, in those days walking in the dirt and sweaty feet, collecting all that mud and junk, you know, like walking in thongs in the, in the mud and how disgusting your feet would get. Well, that's this world. We walk in a world and some of that mud sticks to our feet. We mess up, we lie sometimes, we get selfish sometimes, we do sins of omission, etc. So what we need to do is allow cleansing to take place in our lives because if we don't we will experience separation from him psalm 66 verse 18 says if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord will not hear me so washing our feet regularly is not about losing salvation it's about losing intimacy and exodus 30 shows us and uh, it gives us an illustration of this new testament principle and i think jesus would have been thinking about this So when a priest was first called, he was washed from head to toe in a ceremonial bathing, which was like a baptism. From that point on, although he never again needed a head-to-toe cleansing before entering the tabernacle, he would wash his hands and feet in the laver that stood in the tabernacle courtyard. So before he becomes a priest, he must be washed head to toe. But once he's a priest, he doesn't need to be washed head to toe again. He just has to wash his hands and feet. So otherwise, although he would still be a priest, although he would still be a son of Aaron, he wouldn't be allowed access to the tabernacle and would therefore be hindered in his ability to minister and to receive blessing. So just like the priests needed a continual cleansing of their hands and feet, we need a continual cleansing of our hearts through Confession. And that's what the washing of the disciples' feet speaks of. So the word translated confess in scripture is homologio, which means to speak the same. So confession is not promising to never sin again. Confession is agreeing with God. It's saying, Father, your word is right. That is sin, and I confess it as sin. Have mercy on me. Forgive me, deal with me, and change me. Now, considering the fact that the blood of Jesus has already been shed and that the work of the cross is fully completed, why is confession, especially continual confession, when we confess each sin as we become aware of it, so important? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons. The first one is this, that we appreciate the cross, what Jesus did for us on the cross. So if I confess my sin 10, 15, 30 times a day, 
you know, when I become aware of a bad attitude or I've done something wrong or whatever, it causes me to appreciate what Jesus did for me all the more. I should be looking at myself as the chief of sinners and say, wow, Lord, I've had to confess 50 things today, just today. For example, that lie I told, that prideful attitude, that selfish act or selfish attitude, being late for work or church with no good reason, refusing to act or speak when prompted by the Spirit to talk to that person, which is a lack of faith, wasting time looking at the internet or watching videos, not reading the Bible, your love letter to me today and getting my daily bread, Uh, not spending much time with you in prayer when this is something you have called me to do, not being disciplined in my life to get enough sleep and therefore not having a sound mind so I can fully concentrate on what you want to show me as I read your word the next morning. Uh, Wasting time watching TV when I could have been reading your word, praying, spending time with my family, or reading to further equip myself for the work of the kingdom. And often as we become more mature as believers, it's the sins of omission that are worse than the uh, sins of commission or the ones that we actually do. For example, when we tell a lie, we know it. But when we misplace our priorities and, for example, put our ministry or work above family, then it's not so obvious. Okay, So as a mature Christian, we sin less with the obvious sins, but we still need to be careful about those sins of omission and confess those sins to God too. So the continual confession leads me to say, Lord, how I appreciate your life, how I appreciate the work you did for me in paying the price for each of my sins individually. Every time I confess, I'm reminded that Jesus paid my sin debt. I got a quote from John Corson. He says, True confession and trivial Christianity are mutually exclusive because when we really see our sin, we can't help but marvel at the immensity of God's love. Now, the second reason why I think it's good for us to continually confess every time we realize that we've done something against God is that if we're not a confessor, a regular confessor, we can start to think something like this. I can see why I'm being blessed. It makes sense. Because when the Lord chose me, he made a wise choice. (laughs) But when you're in a mode of continual confession, those kind of thoughts never enter your mind. You just don't get a chance. There's not enough time between confession. (laughs) Uh, Instead, you say, Lord, it's only because your mercy is that I'm not consumed. So it takes us back to Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It says, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, his faithfulness. The third reason that I think it's good to continually confess sin any time that we realize that we've sinned against God is it because it results in liberation from the enemy. So unconfessed sin in any area of our life provides the bricks with which the enemy builds a stronghold in our hearts. And so that's 2 Corinthians 10.4. And from there, he can manipulate you over and over again in the area until that particular sin becomes an addiction, a habit, and a part of your life which he can use to control you. And we might ask, how did I get here? How did I get so entangled? How did I get caught up in this attitude or that sin? And the answer can be found at the point where we begin to say, I don't need to confess. Or I don't want to confess. I'm not going to confess. And that's there when the enemy starts building his stronghold. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not 
carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, I have no part with you. You don't need to be baptized again. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need a bath, Peter. You just need your feet washed. And so do we. So just to make it clear, regular confession can prevent habitual sin because often the less serious or less obvious sins precede the bigger sins. And if we humble ourselves and agree with God that the smaller sins are wrong, our consciousness becomes more sensitive and more strong. And as we ask him to change our hearts to abhor these sins, it's very unlikely that we will progress to sins with more serious and obvious consequences. So a couple of things, uh, verses here. Romans 12, 9b, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Now, if we don't do that, we can go the way of the person described in Psalm 36, verse 4, which says, he devises wickedness on his bed, he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor or loathe evil. So we have to keep on confessing and asking God to change us and, and agreeing with God that those things are evil, they're bad. And then God will change us. We'll become more and more sensitive to what is wrong and what is right. We'll start to hate what is wrong and be less and less likely to do those things. Verse 12, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? (laughs) Do you understand the example I have set for you? Jesus is asking his disciples. Now, this shows us that it's only when we understand God's truth that we can apply it to others, that we can apply it to our own lives and be a blessing to others. And verse 13, second part, For you say well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So, Jesus is called Lord and teacher. Why is teacher a good description of him? Well, John fourteen six says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who leads us into all truth through the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So why humble myself and wash my feet? Because after humiliation comes exaltation. And Philippians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So if you're tired of being down and depressed and you want to be lifted up and experience blessing, then the key is humility. You know, a branch on a fruit tree that's got the most fruit on is the lowest to the ground. The fruit pulls it low. So the branch that bears the most fruit is the lowest. So the Christian who bears the most fruit is the one who, with the most humility. The one that bows lowest to serve others. 
Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So either Jesus is telling the truth when he says we're blessed or happy if we follow his example and love as he loved, or he is lying. Well, I believe he's telling the truth because he never lies. God can't lie. That's one of the things, the things that God can't do. He can't lie. So Jesus is true in everything he's ever said. And he's saying here that the way to happiness, to way to blessing, lies in not agreeing with what he's told us to do, not in taking notes on what he's told us to do, but in doing what he told us to do. So next time you feel depressed or distressed, discouraged or despondent, next time you feel like throwing in the towel, <laughs> do what Jesus did instead and pick up the towel and find some dirty feet to wash. And then you can experience the joy of serving the Lord. Father, I just thank you for this awesome passage today. It's very rich and it's very full. And Lord, help us to be people who come to you to have our feet washed daily, or more than that, every time we sin, because we need to be walking in constant communion with you. And every sin separates us from you. So help us to be walking with a pure heart, and Lord, to have a conscience that is sensitive to what is right and what is wrong. Help us to loathe sin. Help us to loathe the things which are wrong and to love the things which are right. And the only way that's going to happen is if we keep asking you to help us, we keep asking you to forgive us, asking you to change us. And the more we ask that, the more you will do it, because you always answer our prayers when they're according to your will. So I just pray that you'll help us to also remember what it's like to be a servant, which means to put others ahead of yourself, esteem them as being better than ourselves. And Lord, I pray that as we do these things, we can be demonstrating genuine love to those around us, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we just yeah pray all these things and pray that you'll fill us with your spirit and empower us to do the things that you want us to do, to live the life you want us to live, to be the people you want us to be. And we thank you for your promise that you will complete what you started. In Jesus' name, amen.